Hello and welcome to Stuck for Ideas, a podcast by Alice Wordsworth and Erin Blackmore. The impetus for this podcast came out of quarantine. With the theatre industry in crisis, our self-sufficiency, creativity and imaginative drive were put to the test. And we have found ourselves looking more than ever to others for inspiration. This podcast is about where we and guests go when we're stuck for ideas. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Stuck for Ideas. We've made it this far. (laughs) Hopefully you have too. Erin, why don't you kick us off and fill the silence with some inspiration of the week? Okay, so... (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Right, launching in. Mine is Ministry of Stories this week, um, which is a children's writing charity um, co-founded by novelist and screenwriter Nick Hornby, who is known for his novels About a Boy and High Fidelity, um, founded in 2010. And it basically just helps young people discover their confidence, imagination and potential through the power of their writing. Uh, They're based in Hackney, which is where they run innovative writing workshops, both on site and in schools in the local area. And one of my favourite things about this is it's identifiable by the monster shop front, which sells everything from bone chunks to tins of escalating panic. (laughs) Um, But I first came across this charity when they did a really amazing collaboration between Communion Records and the ministry, which had 56 children involved from ages 8 to 13 from East London. And they made an album, which you can find on Spotify, which is the result of words and stories written by children, then teamed with music and voices of grown-up songwriters, such as Matthew and the Atlas. And that they've just made the most extraordinary collection of songs. And I might actually play one in our segue. Um, And I've so I've been a volunteer with Ministry of Stories for about eight months now. And I chose them as my inspiration for this week because I was painting miniature figurines for them recently. Because I didn't know that when you buy pre-painted figures, and I literally mean they're kind of like the mini five centimetre, no, five, that's loads, three centimetre sized figures. They're basically all Caucasian. And so due to the diversity of the children who attend the writing workshops in Hackney, they wanted the figures to be more ethnically representative of course of course and it's important at this point to be made aware that the monster shop is home to a number of these mini people who sad for them were shrunk by a particularly grumpy monster one day when they were at the store shopping because you see the monster was displeased that they were out of snot and shrunk everyone present um so until reverse curse is found the shrunken people live in a drawer in the shop and get by as best they can. But during times of COVID, they need looking after. So these mini people are going to be sent out to the club children, plus a tiny box for them to turn into their temporary bedsit while awaiting to be put back to normal size. <laughs> oh, so, if no one was listening to the beginning of that, you definitely just sounded a little, little bit crazy. I actually did. I did a kind of spiel a bit like that for an interview once. And honestly, I think their jaws were on the floor. They were like, who is this person? 
Um, but long story short, I basically admire and feel very inspired by Ministry of Stories, mm. both for its kind of diversity and inclusion and also the importance that it places on imagination. And I think especially currently bringing a little bit of magic into children's homes when they can't be all together at the ministry. That's such an uplifting uh, activity you've been doing and helping with. Will you maybe post a picture as well on our Instagram so people can see your models? Yes, good idea. I can do that. Um, What's yours this week? I couldn't let the week go past without talking about the uh fantastic i'm so excited by this sorry i don't know what you're gonna say i can't wait by the fantastic recreation of the album covers that the uh residents and carers at the seedmar lodge care home in edgeware um have been creating they've been like lots of us uh but particularly working and being in care homes they've been in a severe lockdown for four months um so they have an entertainment manager who thought it would be uh, a brilliant idea to recreate some of the most famous album covers with the residents so there are the most amazing photos of um for example vera uh, recreating Adele's 21 album. Oh, I did album. see that one. So good. It's beautiful. And so it's in picture of Vera with 92 written by her rather than 21, obviously. Um, there's some of... They, they recreated Davey, David Bowie uh Oh my God, the Taylor Swift cover. one. I'm just looking at them now. The Taylor Swift one is one of my favourites where it's like 1922. Um <laughs> And I just think it's the most uh, gorgeous activity. And I've actually also got a really close friend who has just, during lockdown, uh, took on the job of being a... um, uh, I don't even know what her job title is. Something like fun coordinator in a care home in uh, Manchester. And this week she sent me the most amazing video of her making a TikTok video of Old Town Road. You know, I'm going to take my horse to the, that with their Sorry, residence. can you just can you just sing it a bit more, please? I didn't quite uh, catch that. <laughs> that's all you're getting. Um, and she recreated this TikTok video with the residents singing and dancing to Old Town Road oh um, in, their, in their wheelchairs and things and them being their horses. And it was just, I think things like this are bringing... Well, people around the globe, they had the most amazing Twitter storm, these album covers. Um, and also, I hope the residents in the care home, I think it's bringing a little bit of awareness to uh, what's been happening um, in care homes. And hopefully, well, I know they launched this project to raise some money. So I will be putting a link to that uh, place you can donate in the show notes as well. That is so joyful. It also reminds me of them. Um... You know, I feel like there's also been a trend of lots of people recreating famous art works. So like Caravaggio with material draped down them and stuff in their bathtub. I just think all these things are just spreading so much joy. And I hope they're as fun to make as they are to look at afterwards. I saw some of those on the Grayson Perry Art Club. Oh, yeah. Program. He did some brilliant ones of them. Um, so those are our inspirations of the week, the iconic album covers from Seedmar Care Home and Ministry of Stories. We'd now love to welcome our third guest to the podcast. 
a time there was a kid named Jake. He was truthful, he was truthful. Nothing people did could make him a fool. He was smart, he was smart. Jake, 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 Jake. Jake. There was a kid named Jake. There was a kid named Jake. There was a kid named Jake. Maggie Cole, who is an internationally renowned musician and also my lovely neighbour. Um, how are you? I'm fine, Erin. Delighted to be here. So exciting to have you. Um, so I thought we'd just start with a couple of little quick fire questions, as is becoming tradition. Um, so don't think too hard about them, but moon or stars? Moon. Sweet or savoury? Savoury. Fruit or vegetable? Veg. Sea or lake? Lake. <laughs> and downward dog or warrior two? Downward dog. Very good. I love that you're a yoga fan as well. Something that I've newly introduced myself to in lockdown. Have you been keeping it up? Um, I, it, well, everything for me nowadays is about qigong. So there's a little bit of yoga in the day, but really the main discipline focus is this other practice. Oh, so nice. We'll definitely get stuck into that in a bit so I loved that article that you sent me that your friend had done which kind of for those who haven't seen it yet it's like a kind of inspired by Virginia Woolf isn't it a room of one's own and kind of asking different people to explain what their lockdown routine has been in their studio space and I just thought it was such a beautiful it was perfect a perfect mix of kind of the bigger picture and really fo- focusing in on like the details of what your life has been over the last what is it now four and a half months wow. or something yes, oh my gosh so long. so long but I loved the bit that you mentioned about your mother and I just wondered if you could talk a bit because you it sounded like the musical side of things has very much come from that side of the family would you say I, I would, Aaron. I mean, my dad and his family have had huge appreciation of music, but actually people playing came down my mother's side. So, I mean, it really started with my half-brother, who is my, was my mother's, he's still alive, is my mother's son by her first marriage, which is why he's my half-brother. And he's 10 years older than me. So in our home, the fact that he was playing jazz on the piano, mm. starting to learn jazz... Um, that was really an amazing first first igniting of musical interest. But then there's an uncle on my mother's side, her brother, um, passionate cellist, his wife, passionate cellist, their sons, two professional musicians. So yeah. it does. It comes strongly down the Chicago side of my family on my mother's side. And is that where you grew up? No. It's where actually both my parents grew up and the whole mother's side still, most of them are still there. But my parents um, met in Florida after the war and I grew up in a little town north of New York, about 30 miles north of New York City. That's so lovely though. I do find it's always so special kind of when once you've kind of figured out how passionate you are about something to then look back in retrospect and go, oh, where's, where's the seed of that and where has that come from? Because in a way, it's not something that I ever think you realise necessarily at the time. It's just something that you can kind of trace back later on. Exactly. And if it starts very, very young and it just feels like something you do, like playing outside or riding mm. a bike, 
to you it seems completely natural you don't think about where has this come from yeah yeah and do you feel like there's a particular song or moment that you think ignited your love for it or is there a kind of there are a few. Yeah, that made you fall in love yeah, with music. Yeah, there are a few. And I mean, I really was one of those strange children. I was very, very young. So I was four, and we had a piano in our house. And as I say, my brother was playing it. But I figured out, um, and I probably just wanted to be something like him, mm. but I figured out that I could, you know, pick out tunes on this piano. Yeah. Um, and then started begging for lessons. And so the first thing was hearing him play, and then I started studying and um, kind of traveled quite quickly with it. And I had a teacher who was passionate about Bach, the music of Bach. And mm. there was a particular young man who had just sprung onto the world, just like cataclysmically. He's called Glenn Gould. I mean, very, very famous now, but nobody had heard of him. And he played Bach in a very different way to anybody else at the time. And I guess she really pushed his recordings on me because she was excited and yeah. there was something uh, before understanding anything of what this is about why are you attracted to somebody's playing and why does that music make sense it it really made sense to me but I have to say and people are sometimes surprised the biggest biggest musical deal for me the awakening passionate love was hearing Aretha Franklin for the oh. first time so the whole Motown thing was bursting when I was very young yeah and just listening to the radio and one after another the Supremes and Aretha and Stevie Wonder so the real connection through music happens to be non-classical for me even though I've ended up being that's so lovely though I think to kind of fall in love with it in a broader sense and then figure out your place in that is such a nice way to come at it it feels really organic and like you know, a lot of it is circumstantial. You just end up with this teacher and, and this particular teacher I had who hilariously looked like Marilyn Monroe. And I say hilariously because she was the most serious person on <laughs> earth and very driven and driving of her students. And she thought playing anything non-classical was just a waste of time and almost evil. So, you know, it was just through sheer tenacity that I hung on to the love of playing non-classical yeah. music while getting this very good training. So you her. started with modern piano and then later on in life came to the harpsichord and then piano forte? Well, you know, it's a funny term. We call it forte piano just to make a difference between it and the, and the modern t- piano, yes. which can be called the piano forte. Okay. So, but the forte piano, which is just all it means is early, early forms of piano. So all the pianos that happened before the full development of the piano into what it is today. So the one I have, for instance, at home is a copy of a 1795 piano. And they were completely different then to what they are now. And so the sort of piano that Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven knew just doesn't bear much resemblance. It strikes the strings yeah. like a like a piano does, but in every other way, it's pretty different. So yes, those earlier keyboard instruments yeah. came to me much later in life. That's so nice. And so for those who don't know the kind of nuances of that, would you? Is there a different tonal sound to it, or is it a kind of rhythm that 
What, um, how would you describe the difference? So the three instruments have absolutely different tonal um, sounds. So the harpsichord is a plucked instrument. So everybody, um, people who say, I don't know what a harpsichord is and I don't know what it sounds like. If you say, did you ever watch the Adams Family, have probably heard a harpsichord, this plucky, plucky sound. Oh, yeah, okay. The harpsichord's used in Beatles songs. and um, So anyway, it was the, har- the keyboard instrument of the 16th, 17th, 18th century, and the piano had not been invented at all. So it has a different sound, but it also has a different technique because of how it works. Okay. Um, and I won't go into all of that because it'll get way too technical and, and long. And then the forte piano, the early piano, being more delicately uh, constructed in every possible way, more delicate in its stringing and its hammers, and it's all made of wood, mm-hmm. unlike the big modern piano. The technique for the sound is utterly more difficult. Um, more delicate, mm. um, silvery, and sort of transparent and clear. and um, But the touches, the technique you use to play it is, again, different from the harpsichord and different from the modern piano. Because by the time the big piano was invented, it, the whole construction had grown heavier and you need more force to play it, mm. more muscle and a different kind of technique. Because the forte piano is slightly smaller as well in build, isn't it? Much smaller. If you see one, you'd think that's a harpsichord, but it isn't. Yeah. So nice. And so then just going back to your kind of journey of training and things, you, so your early training was in your little town that you grew up in. That's and right. then you also mentioned that you then did some of it in Geneva? I did. I did. And... Again, the story's become too long, but the, the basic gist of it is that um, my mom suddenly decided, I was the youngest in the family, and she suddenly decided... How many? Four. Four. So two of the half-brothers and my full sister and me, all sorts of things had happened, and she decided to have a big adventure. She'd never been out of the United States in her life, and she decided to move to Europe, and I was the only one left, so... Switzerland became her choice for various reasons and and off we went and part of the choice is that she had heard about a very very good piano teacher in Geneva wow. at the conservatory and got I got a place there so how old were you at that point um that was 16 16 yeah so for those two years I would we lived in Lausanne and I would take the train once a week to Geneva and have my lesson <laughs> trundle back home to Lausanne and go to school and <laughs> And what kind of level were you at that point? I was very advanced. I mean, I had already done lots of concerts by this point okay. in my life. It, it, it did all start really very young. And, um, however, it was an interesting time because my, my Swiss teacher, who was a very, very wonderful and perceptive man, he, he saw at a glance that I'd been pushed too hard, too young. And okay. he saw that technically we needed to backtrack and do a lot of sort of remedial work, just get me calmer and more relaxed. And Mm. so, in fact, we went back to easier repertoire, in a sense. Um, And it was a massive relief, really, yeah, not to be pushing and pushing. Yeah, that's so nice. And I think that's quite rare, especially as I think the way that we learn nowadays is so there's such an end goal to it and actually there's such I think there's so much to learn from going actually do you know what I've 
progressed really wonderfully, but along the way have left a few gaps that actually when you can kind of relax into something that you know you can do, you can then start to fill those holes. Yeah, it's very common in the musical world for people to have, well, in fact, at 18, I stopped altogether. So even with his wonderful teaching, the pushing had been too hard and I, I was sort of up against a wall and it lost all inspiration and all reason for why mm. I had chosen. And this is a common story. It sounds dramatic, but so many young musicians, it, it, it's just all too intense too soon. And what gets forgotten is the, the initial inspiration and the, what it's about, which is telling stories and, you know, speaking to people through music. And many, I, at, with my teaching now, and I mostly teach people who are about 20 years old, and it's just what you say, the end goal is, has been drummed into them so hard and they're often not in really good shape with themselves or physically because mm. their physical bodies take on all this stress and yeah, tension, yeah. stress. And so there's a lot to sort of sort out really. Yeah. So then, so you had two years in Switzerland mm -hmm. and then was but, that, that's when you were 18 and then had a bit of a break from it, was it? Yeah. Quite a break, like the big rebellion. So really, it was Ooh, tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it really was. I, I, I stamped my foot, disappointed everybody, made everybody very upset and angry, and said, "That's it. I'm moving to London with my boyfriend, and I'm not playing music. And you can forget all those hopes and dreams you had for me." You know, I understand it well now. I the, the disappointment for everybody, for parents and what teachers, whatever. Um, but it was necessary, complete. I would not be in the world of music now, yeah. I feel, if I hadn't done that. So I came here and I had a fantastic, I'd always been really interested in dance. And so I did a lot for those, for a few years and cleaned houses and waitressed to earn my money and, you know, just, and floated and didn't know what I would ever do. And, and then, and then got the urge to go back to the States for education and, and discovered a harpsichord one day by accident and it, it was a big turning point and it, it kind of pulled me back into music. That's, that's the good short version. So nice. <laughs> what kind of dance did you do? Well, it was mostly modern, um, kind of Graham technique, but with a lot of other influences. But then I was always going to some Indian classical dance class and some flamenco you know there was always other poles and then just fun social dancing so and nice and, yeah. and actually such a lovely way of still being connected to a sense of rhythm and sound and movement yeah, absolutely I know just I, in a different way when I think of it now I just think if you know it was sort of people nowadays might say Oh, this this young woman is in kind of breakdown. You know, she's really lost. Her. They might well have, and I might well. <laughs> yeah, you know, my, my kind of actual state wasn't great, but I had plenty to do. And movement, as we all know, you know, it keeps you moving. Yeah, <laughs> it, it keeps things changing and moving through you, and and new ideas can appear, and um, you stay well. Mm -hmm. So it was very, and I needed to look in the face. Do I want to? do this professionally and quickly found out no I don't want to and then how did you accidentally stumble across a harpsichord just 
just absolutely through being at a little university in the Midwest that, that had a music school attached to it, a conservatory, walking through a door one day looking for a piano to play on because I always still, you know, I just always needed to be around a piano just for my pleasure. And instead of a piano, I found a harpsichord in that room and just thought, what is this? And kind of went mad for it and found the person who was teaching. And mm. I really went mad for it. And after a while, thought, well, if I'm back in music, I, I need a really good teacher and I really need to take this seriously and kind of catch up. So yeah. I came back to London with the notion that I would find a good teacher. Um, and I did. <laughs> so nice. And then, I mean... Then I feel like you've then gone on to perform in amazing venues all over the world and in kind of lots of different settings and for lots of different audiences. Do you have a favourite of them or can you name a few to kind of demonstrate the breadth of all of that? Oh, Erin, that's so sweet. Um, I really, really love playing in very out-of-the-way places to, to audiences that don't constantly have music. There's something thrilling about that. So mm. one memory is playing way, way up north in Norway on an island around June 21st. So, you know, you can imagine the long, 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 Beautiful. long days. And people to come to this concert in this tiny church had to arrive by boat if they wanted to hear this music. And, you know, so that's extreme. It was just magical. And, of course, they their listening was just wrapped and yeah. and and afterwards at one thirty in the morning we went went hiking and went on a picnic because it was the midnight sun so, that must be so surreal totally it totally. just must be completely disorientating it was wild i mean people were building their houses at one in the mornings so unforgettable but i mean probably one of the most really breathtaking situations was playing a few years in a row in the alhambra <gasps> And they don't start concerts there till 10.30 at night. And so I was, I was teaching on a music course um, for about six years, and it, it lasted for two weeks, and the teachers on the course were expected to teach all day in the heat and then play concerts at, at night. So you typically be pretty tired before these 10.30. Yeah. Um, and I seem to find myself typically playing some solo on the harpsichord at midnight in an outdoor, one of those extraordinary courtyards in the Alhambra with bats flying around and a cat walked across the front of the stage while I played one night. Unbelievably so romantic and extraordinary and frightening, you know, really mm. huge audience, again, so focused and loving their music those are two i mean london is full of amazing venues i happen to adore playing in king's place and i always want people to know how great it is there and i hope and hope it will reopen i know fully and that's the it's a favorite hall of please one day we will return to them i'm sure and well that's interesting that you talk about audiences as well who aren't as used to being exposed to music in that way, and I feel like that's a nice segue to your work with the U.S. Um, offenders facilities. Right. Yes. That sounds like, what was that like, and what was their response to it? Oh, Erin, it's such a beautiful... Young offenders, wasn't they're it? They're young offenders. So this is a group called Sarasa that I've played with for years and years, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and 
right from the start, one of the missions was to play our concerts, but to take the programs we were um, giving into facilities for youth offenders, as you say, so 14 to 18-year-olds who mm. are usually locked up for maximum six months. Um, in some facilities that are good, and uh, some that are less good, and it all depends on the staff, of course, and who's at the head of, of the staff, but anyway, we, we found that we were welcomed back instantly. I mean, the, the young people responded so they still do and they will do again i can't wait to get back to it but this disbelief i think people often think um kids from very very mixed backgrounds who've gotten into a lot of trouble and as the years went by we saw the offenses grow more and more serious particularly with the young women so the beginning it it might be a bit of stealing and bit of prostitution it turned more and more into into grievous bodily harm and okay. knifings and gang related stuff anyway what relationship would they have to western white <laughs> class mostly classical mm. music because what we were bringing was our music unwatered down the idea was to play a selection to the best of our ability just mm. as we would do and the amazing thing to see was just that it was to these people it was just music played very seriously with passion and um, the level of enthusiasm I mean not always obviously you know if, if young people were on medication and you know a little bit lower in spirit or we went once and played our thing and it was a very bad day in terms of feeling we had connected mm. and well we learned afterwards that one of their peers had committed suicide the oh day God. before so why should they have it but mostly it would be this extraordinary feeling of oh, loads and loads of questions and uh, wanting to perform with that you know so we would end up doing collaborations oh, nice. with their freestyle rap and we would play underneath that and um, you know, young people just volunteering to jump up and do, or being really encouraged by their peers, you know, you need to get up and show them what you do, and, you know, so I could tell you so many stories. Mm -hmm. So, it was always hard to leave them, you know. So, what period of time were you often with them? Was it just a kind of day? It was a couple of hours only, wow, okay. so what we would love, and then we developed a program that went over two weeks so it was three visits over two weeks so that we could develop stuff with them That's so nice. music and poetry and and it would end up with their performance with us assisting oh, them um but you know generally much too short a period and instantly forming an attachment <laughs> to them and wanting to scoop them up and always wondering I still have so many of them in my memory and wondering how did it turn out you know what was next for you that is the tricky thing with things like that where you it's always so intense and so absorbing yeah. and then like you say you're left with the attachment and going I don't know how the story ends well the first time we ever did it we got home shell-shocked and there's a photograph of four of us who had been in the facility that day 
and we're all under on one sofa under a duvet and you can see we're just completely we've been crying and we it's like drinking tea that was the beginning we got a little more used to the feelings and the experience of it but how many years have you done that that's a long one and that's oh my goodness good 15 years of that work often i mean living over here I don't get to do it as much as I would like, but every time I go to work with that group, mm. off we go and, and do it. And I feel grateful, it connects back to the beginning of our conversation, that I had that background in non-classical music because I can absolutely tap into that and use it for inventing stuff with mm. the young people. You so know. great. It's, but, you know, just, I mean, just one amazing memory. We had an incredible classical singer with us and he sang, we always started out by playing something and he sang wonderfully, a piece of Bach. And then he went into a little talk about why do I sing in this voice which may sound unusual or strange to you. He got three sentences out and a young guy back of the room shouted, you don't need to tell us anything about it, we just like it, just sing more. It was like, <laughs> just forget all of that. Yeah. Just do it more. All the fluff around it. It's like, don't worry we about don't it. We don't need just the go. categories. We don't need explanations. You don't sound weird to us. We just like it. Yeah. Do it more. That's the kind of confidence and motivation we need. Yeah. So great. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm sure they're very special memories for them as well. It must be hugely... I don't know. Yeah. Exciting. Big question marks. Big question marks. Yeah. Um, but I thought we'd talk also a little bit more about your teaching, which you've mentioned, uh, that you even taught me all those years ago. <laughs> and I with, remember that with lots of pleasure. Oh, it was so wonderful. And I always used to come and, like, play with the cat as well, whichever <laughs> gorgeous one you had at the time, whether it was Barley or Wigmore or Maisie. So many happy memories. But And I obviously can't admit that... Uh, I should have stuck with it because my parents will never forgive me because they told me I'd regret it. But no. Um, do you find that your relationship with the music changes when you're being a teacher versus a performer yourself? Um, you know, like many of my colleagues, I do both. And it just depends on what proportion you want to keep it in. So when I was younger, I did a lot of teaching and a lot of teaching of very young children. And I loved it, and I don't do that anymore, and I, I, I miss it a little, because it's so fantastic being with young children. Um, now it's, the well, until COVID, the proportion was way weighted on, on the performance side with, with some teaching, and it was kind of a perfect proportion, I would say. I, I have my class at the Guildhall, and I have some private students, and it, they've Absolutely, the teaching informs the playing. Um, there's nothing like figuring out all sorts of things like physical problems that we talked about earlier mm. or an interpretation issue that you've never even countenanced and a young person is saying, I don't know what to do with this. How do you think about this? And you know, I'll think to myself, wow, okay, I better, I better think. So it's very enriching. I find to teach and only helps their performing. They feel completely bound up with each other. Yeah. However, I've never been wanted to be a teacher who has 40, 50 students a week and that's the main source of income and 
I, I just knew for me, it, it, it's a, a real giving out. Oh my God. And especially with young children, you're just giving out energy every second of the lesson and until, you know, much later when they're advanced and the energy comes back. But yeah, um, so. Cause, yeah. And you're a professor at the Guildhall. Well, that's Guildhall what it's music. called here. And it's so funny. Small P, I always say. It is a small <laughs> P. You know, to be a professor, big P, you really earn that. We're all called professors, anybody who teaches at the Guildhall. And yeah, I am of the Forte Piano. And is that individual lessons or is that a it's lecture? It's a class. It's a class. Um, uh, it's the second year pianos, big piano students, as I call them, the modern piano. And they have to take its compulsory class in introduction wow. to forte piano. And out of that, there are usually a few who become passionate about it. And then they have individual lessons with me the following year. So, But I don't teach harpsichord at the, at the Guildhall. And how are you, because I know we had a conversation earlier on in lockdown about how we were both struggling for kind of motivation to pursue both music and theatre alike, because obviously this is all, like we had that amazing flurry at the beginning where I think everyone was ready to be really productive. And then of course, when it suddenly went on longer than we'd all anticipated, you then hit a wall and you think, hang on, what am I doing this for? And I think you particularly said that when you just don't have the prospective audiences, it makes the practice and the and the doing it daily so much more of a challenge. Yeah. Um, how did you? How are you feeling about that now? I suppose <laughs> there have been so many phases of this, and when I check in with my friends and colleagues, they've all gone through quite similar journey. But we're all different. So I notice now that. I'm watching a lot of colleagues madly, feverishly do things online. And I think, how great and how lovely. And I don't seem to want to do that. Mm. I just don't seem... Um, so my daily practice, if you want to call that, that's very firmly in place that the desire came back after a while. And mm. I suddenly had a project of learning new repertoire that I really wanted to do. And yeah. that felt great, just digging into something big just because I wanted to. Um, so that's all going on. The desire to perform is going to be satisfied. I, I'm going to do a little street concert in a couple of weeks with a, a cellist friend who's dying to play. And, you know, we thought rather than just playing together, we've got to do something live. And I haven't done any of these street concerts, so he's got an electric piano and we'll let the neighborhood know and we'll set up in the Amazing. street. Amazing. And, you know, Erin, it's so funny. That just feels enough that just that feels great until I don't I don't know another idea will come I'm not pushing it too hard and I'm really trying not to get into that slightly competitive mode of oh so-and-so's doing that it's brilliant I better do that I just don't oh it's too hard I think if you go down that track I don't want any of it let them all merrily do their and I'm enjoying a lot of what they're doing you know I'm sitting at home mm. and watching beautiful things online and are you still playing for your pre it was it a preschool class well you know it was an invitation to make a couple of videos for a nursery That's right. and I made those because I was asked and I enjoyed making them and a couple of friends got wildly excited and said, this is your thing, Maggie, now you have to do this. You know, you need to do a whole thing and brand it and publicize it and it, it's the best thing ever. 
And you know, when people do that, you sort of think, oh, maybe I have to do this. And I, the more I sat with it, the more I thought that was just, it was a spurt of creative yeah. outlet. And I really enjoyed it, but actually, no. I do not want to be spending a huge amount of time and effort creating. Oh, and I looked online, you know, I did some research. There's so much that's good out there for little children. It's not like there's a you know, big empty hole needing to be yeah. filled. There's tremendously good things. And so, you know, I might do a little more, but not in the kind of I am now creating a major. <laughs> I think that is such a skill though to be able to identify that especially in a time like this that is at once not demanding at all and on the other hand completely demanding of everything of actually going I've tried it I enjoyed it I took away this from it but actually I can leave it there it's okay to kind of plant that and just go okay it's good we experimented it but I don't need to pursue it further because I think when we feel like we have the time you think oh god I've got to pursue everything when actually yeah it can serve its purpose and then exactly and show you be a sort of pointer if only no it's not that let's see what else is yeah. opening up absolutely and i read um in a interview that i think you did quite a few years back now that i think they asked you what your greatest challenge was professionally i suppose um and you said sticking with it do you still feel that no, not so much, Erin, really not so much. I I really meant that at the time, and it had been very true for me for yeah. many years. It just seemed so often like there were all these other important jobs to do in the world mm. that more obviously served people. Um, and people will say, but we need music, and it totally serves, which I knew, but I couldn't quite see it. So I'm happy to say that I don't struggle with that so much anymore. I mean, right now, of course, the challenge is just, yeah. as we've been talking about, figuring out how we're going to do it in the in a new world and what form it will take and how much. And, you know, it, my life involves so much travel, and if that's not going to be so, what, what will it look like? And, yeah. 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 I did find it reassuring to hear you say that, though, because I think the arts, I, d- I definitely find myself toying from one end of the spectrum to the other of going, I absolutely know that the arts are vital to survive and to nourish and enrich and kind of build a sense of creative community. But then at the same time, I definitely have moments of feeling like it's a bit self-indulgent. And like you say, there's so much need in the world that you sometimes feel like there needs to be a more social socially engaged aspect that kind of justifies it somehow yeah so it's interesting that you've kind of gone on a journey with that in itself yes (laughs) (laughs) definitely (laughs) definitely and you know and that it really it all still holds true doesn't it I mean there's great huge parts of me that just want to leap into action at the moment and go help out wherever I can and just this whole privilege of sitting and being able to think what does music you know what part does it play in my Mm. life there is a a very privileged aspect to even being able to ask the questions Mm. and um a slight tangent from music now I thought I'd because much like 
uh, our house. We're very lucky that we're surrounded by lots of books. And I was wondering, because Al and I were having a, one of our chats last week and sort of debates was whether after this um, period of time that is kind of pre-COVID, post-COVID, whether we're, we're looking for escapism or things that kind of somehow reflect back on what we've just experienced. And I wondered if you'd read anything that falls into either bracket over lockdown. Interesting. I mean, one noticeable thing is I've read so much less than I ever thought I would. I, I have been less uh, desirous of lots of reading than mm. I usually am. But um, I did have an urge right at the beginning of, I had just finished the book that you lent me, Girl, Woman, Other. Oh, yes. So I just finished that. And it was so such an epic and so fantastic. And then lockdown came. And I turned to the book by Brian Keenan called An Evil Cradling. Um, it was like an instinct. And thank goodness I found it instantly on my shelf. And it's... The, it's his memoir of the time he spent in captivity in Beirut, oh, wow. four and a half years, absolutely dire, not knowing if it would ever end. And it's an extraordinary, I think, bit of writing. But it was like, you really, I would question myself, you really, really want to read about such an extreme form of literal lockdown at this time. But I did, and I really wanted to remember, because I, I read it first when he first wrote it, and I was so struck by it. Mm. And I wanted to remember what was it about how he wrote about psychologically what we do with ourselves when lots of things are removed. In his case, everything. Everything. Yeah. 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 And it proved to be an amazing... I read it very slowly this time and kind of pondered <laughs> a great deal of it. So that was so interesting. And did you find it changed how you then felt kind of coming back into your reality that was obviously slightly less extreme but did it put it into perspective or constantly you know just absolutely and because he's so good at kind of tracking yes physically and the minute changes in his circumstances in captivity but because what he was doing beautifully is tracking the psychological effect the emotional effect mm. um that, and and I think a lot of us have been paying attention to we you know we have the time to do that with ourselves yeah. you know like each week having a different color or hue and totally. how people have many different ways of talking about this time but yeah it did make me constantly come back into right now my experience of what we're going through and and look at it differently. In fact, I remember that we said to each other at the beginning of lockdown that we wished we'd made a note of how we felt at each week or like given it a title because like of course when you look back on it it all so merges into one but actually I kind of wish we were saying we'd wished we'd identified what yeah. each week was yeah. so that then we'd have this amazing chart of our emotional journey in this strange time really. Exactly I have one dear friend who did she found herself giving names to the color of each week and it was the week when she said well this is empty vessel week that I, I I said wow and she said I've just been sort of doing that because they just occurred to me and that one was <laughs> I had had a couple of empty vessel week 
I love that. That's so emblematic. <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh gosh. And um, I know you relish in nature and love outdoor. In fact, we were just talking about wild swimming opportunities coming up. Yeah. And I also feel that you. Um, I'd read a couple of things where you'd had an affinity with birdsong and spoken a lot about that. And I was wondering, and this might be a really <laughs> abstract question, but if you think of birdsong as music or whether you feel like kind of sound and music mean something different to you. Such a brilliant question, Era. I mean, really, I have never thought about it. Um... I mean, there's that thing where you can hear some bird song and it makes such a beautiful little pattern and, you know, I might take that away and play around with it in my head and it turns into, a, I, not a composition because I'm not a com- composer, but yeah, I might mm. play with it musically. But no, I would, I, I think I really relish the difference between wild sound just created by whatever animal or bird or the wind in the trees or whatever and the very organized nature of music, whatever style of music it is. But I mean, there's the composer Messiaen, you know, who's all his inspiration, not all, huge inspiration was birdsong. And a lot of his compositions are, he, he literally took down, notated wow. birdsong and they feature through his music. And it's kind of great that he merged the two. That sounds but incredible. I do, I don't know, I love really modern, compositions that use sound, noise, sound, um, not musical notes, I, and somehow weave that into yeah. a more composed In fact, sound, that amalgamation sounds a little bit like some of the things you played with, with the Young Offenders in terms of if you had rap layered on classical music. Exactly. Kind of nice and, mix. and, you know, voice percussion and beatboxing and all of that. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So mm. nice. And so going back to your, so you were doing flamenco classes, <laughs> but, and then you were just talking about this new, is it a martial art? Oh, the Qigong. Qigong. So no, you know, well, I think a lot of them go back originally to a martial art, but Qigong is like a very, if you were to see it, it's a very simplified um, tai Chi. So it comes from China and it's absolutely ancient. And if you travel in China, you'll see groups of older people on street corners doing this beautiful, slow, repetitive series of movements. And it's not Tai Chi and you'll ask it. They always say, oh, it's our Qigong. And it, um, so that's what it is, Erin. It's a fantastic meditation and motion practice, I would call it. And some of some of the movements you can tell they did have a martial arts aspect a long time ago. So it's very uh, codified and comes down through a long, long tradition. And I happened to find an unbelievably great teacher in West London years ago. And it's a mainstay. It's a real kind of mainstay of my, of my life. And are you doing that over Zoom now then? We had the classes on Zoom, and she's masterful at using Zoom and teaching us and the feeling of group intimacy, learning. Absolutely, totally incredible what she's able to do. Yeah, creating the same atmosphere and sense of real deep learning that she would give in class. I do think when the ability to do that, it, it blows my mind because... I think I read something at the beginning of lockdown that said if there was like a two second lag on a Zoom call, that 
person's self-esteem plummets even in two seconds so I think and you can tell like definitely people are more anxious over zoom because of technical difficulties and like even if you know it's absolutely nothing to do with you it's just the technology there is a slight kind of stomach lurch where you go oh have I done something wrong yeah and so the fact that you talk about the way that they're able to maintain the atmosphere and kind of sense of serenity. Uh, just unbelievable. I mean, when she announced that she would be switching and, you know, teaching on Zoom, she couldn't possibly cross all of London to get to us. Yeah. The centre was closed and all of that. And she said, I'm just going to take four or five days to really learn everything I need to know to teach you. Well, she just unbelievably trained herself thoroughly. So mm. that the very first class on Zoom was sort of meticulous. I, I'm full of admiration. <laughs> so wonderful. And do you, just out of curiosity, keep your video on for the classes? Because I feel like that's quite a... Some people do, some people don't with these kind of um, things. You know, I do. And we, uh, it's only one or two people don't. But, you know, we're just our little squares. And she's the main picture mm. because we want to be able to see her. Yeah. And, yeah, there's a fantastic sense of community many of us have been going for a long time so yeah yeah and we have a little break in the middle and you know get a cup of tea and how long are the classes it's an hour and a half and i do it twice a week and practice on the other days of of the week but through a wonderful series of not coincidences but conversations she now is giving a class to my sister and another oldest friend of mine one in california one in Seattle, all of their friends on the west coast of America. So this You're spreading it around the world. I, she just generously said, of course I'll do a class for what we call the west, Clo- west coast women. You know, <laughs> 10.30 where they are in the morning, 6.30 where she is in London. So, yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah, and is it, do you I do it to that. music? No. No. So it's, it's all kind it's, of silent it's meditation. It's in silence and with her leading the movements for those who need some words mm. to help but yeah so fantastic yeah, it is well, i think we've nearly covered all our questions but uh, the one that we always end on is kind of where you go when you're stuck for ideas when you're feeling lost for inspiration do you have a person you turn to or a object or a space or Again, it's a beautiful question. And I mean, uh, the first thing that springs to mind is walking. Mm. Because what a lot of people experience this, but whatever it is, the rhythm of walking seems to release new and slightly fresher ideas for me. Yeah. Not like a guarantee, but if I'm really stuck, I just go walk. And then, you know, this is the sort of inner place to go and look. And that's in the qigong in, in meditation and walking. And the outer, very beloved colleagues, swapping ideas. Um, I have a women's group of me and four other women. And they all happen to be therapists so, yeah, and trained in four different ways. So wow. it's a very, it's an incredible place to go to being with them and just hearing how they view what's going on. husband you know who even after many years has such a different point of view <laughs> it's just refreshing so wonderful so I can't get I hope I can't get too stuck amazing 
<laughs> at Macy. Absolutely. Nature always, always being yeah. with trees. Yeah. Um, and we thought maybe then you said you might have a recording that we could play at some... Not as in, not now, don't worry, we can... But um, that would be amazing if we can maybe tag on a little bit at the end. Thank you for joining us on this podcast please don't forget to rate review and subscribe so other creatives can find us when they're stuck for ideas 